This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 126. He's got jagged yellow teeth and he's got no shirt on, baggy pants, and he's got a baseball bat in his hand. And he's like, What the bleep are you doing in here? You know, get the heck out of my apartment. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Dorkin, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host. Well, he's not really here. He's not really where he's supposed to be. Frankly, nobody really knows where he is. It's Brandon <laughs> Turner. What's up? What's up, everyone? How's it going? What's up, dude? Where, where are you today, man? Like, you know, you're supposed to be somewhere, but you're not there. You're like yesterday, you were in New York, the day before Washington, and then, you know, Seattle. Where, where are you going to be next? What's going on? What's, what's this thing you're doing? All right. So let's see. So we started in, uh, we started in Seattle, drove out to Minnesota, up to Michigan, down to Detroit, down to Lima, Ohio. Ooh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I actually saw some $500 houses. It was pretty awesome. I didn't see nice. the dollar ones, but whatever. Uh, I deliberately like was like, I'm going to try to find the worst neighborhoods in all of Detroit. And my wife's like, where are we going? I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go find us a Starbucks. And I'm like <laughs> deliberately trying to find terrible neighborhoods. And then, nice. uh, yeah, and then went over to New York City, did a, a meetup with a bunch of BP people there. So shout out to everyone who showed up for that. And then uh, down the East Coast. And now I'm over in New Orleans right now, headed back towards your way to Denver. So I should be there in a couple of days. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds like it's been a phenomenal trip and you've got to meet with BP people throughout the country, which is yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. That's been awesome. I mean, just like taking the on, the online world to the offline world and like meeting people from bigger pockets and going out to coffee and, and getting drinks and whatever. Like it's just been a really, really enjoyable uh, time getting to know people from the site. So yeah, if people aren't, aren't actually doing that, if you are only online, I mean, there's 300,000 members, which we just crossed 300,000 members. Like there are people in your area, in your backyard. Well, hopefully not literally in your backyard. That'd be creepy. But in your, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, go meet with those people. Like it's amazing. Like the kind of learning and growing you can have have when you get out there in the real world and build some relationships. Great advice. Great advice. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, cool. So, you know, we're, uh, we're on for yet another episode of the Bigger Pocket Podcast. We've got a really, really cool show this week. I'm exceptionally excited about this one. You know, uh, it's, it's not often you kind of, you know, you, you get a show where somebody's just on and the tips are just nonstop and, and, you know, the, the the genuine desire to really just share everything is there, and obviously on the Bigger Pockets podcast we get that with with most of our guests, but um, this one is just really awesome. I, I really enjoyed yeah. this. So today we we've got Brian Murray, and uh, Brian's a commercial real estate investor, and there's all sorts of great stuff that we're going to get into. Before we do, let's get to today's quick tip. All right. So today's quick tip actually is something we've talked about before in the past, but I want to rehash it here. Uh, if you guys are not listening to the Ask BP podcast, you should definitely check that out. Uh, especially, oh, yeah. yeah, the one that I put out today, it's different than every other one. So if you listen to that one, if it's your first one, uh, it's totally different. But uh, I recorded a video actually in the car while driving, uh, something that I learned while in the car, like kind of like 
a concept that that came to me and totally changed the way I think about real estate and investing. Uh, it's basically called like the one thing you need to do uh, to achieve your wildest goals and dreams. Uh, it's really, really cool. I, don't, I wish somebody would explain it to me 10 years ago. It would have totally changed how I did everything. So anyway, it's like a 20 minute video uh, slash MP3, you know, if you're listening in the car or if you want to watch on YouTube. Uh, but anyway, you can check that specific episode out at biggerpockets.com slash askbp039. Or just go to biggerpockets.com slash askbp, and it's episode number 39. So yeah, check it out. I think you'll like that one a lot. And it's on YouTube. It's on I mean, uh, iTunes. It's on everything. Yeah. Yeah. So. Awesome. That's great. That's great. And uh, I've got a really quick, quick tip, which is we've got this great new feature on Bigger Pockets. It's this live chat thing. So you could essentially go uh, click on the profile of any of your colleagues and start chatting with them live if they're on the site. Just you know, have a conversation back and forth in real time with the chat. You'll see there's a little thing on the bottom right of your uh, bigger pockets window once you start connecting, and this whole chat window pops up, and it's pretty awesome. Uh, if you see somebody on the forums that your colleagues with, you'll see like a little green dot, which means they're online, or red dot, which means they're offline, and you can literally just start live chatting with uh, the people you know and like and are connected to on bigger pockets in real time. So definitely check that out. It's a great feature. People are really starting to love it um, and use it a lot. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. Every lender loves to talk about how easy it is to get a mortgage. Then when it's time to fund your next deal, they ask for your full financials, your blood type, your mother's famous spaghetti recipe, and a map to the fountain of youth. Sound familiar? You got all that handy, right? Why not switch to a lender who actually makes qualifying for a loan easy? A lender like Host Financial. Host Financial takes the tedious tax returns, endless W-2s, and time-consuming financial requests out of the picture. Their light dock and common sense underwriting guidelines mean frictionless transactions every time. You'll even be able to use the actual or projected income of the short-term or long-term rental you're looking to purchase or pull equity out of. That's what lending built for investors looks like. So take the next step and grow your portfolio faster. Visit hostfinancial.com to request a quote in as fast as 60 seconds, which is faster than this ad. If not, it's pretty close. That's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Again, that's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. All right, let's get to this. This is, again, show 126 of the Bigger Pockets podcast. You can check out the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 126. 
That's biggerpockets.com slash 126. And uh, let's bring on Brian. Brian's, again, great guy. Really excited to have him. So uh, let's, let's do this. All right, Brian, welcome to the show, man. It's good to have you here. Finally. All right. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Brandon. Glad to be here. Third yeah. time's the charm, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's do this. Yeah, cool. Let's, let's get into yep. this thing, man. Tell us about yourself. Sure. What, do you, what do you do in real estate? Yeah, my name is Brian Murray. I own a company called Washington Street Properties that I started back in 2007. And uh, I primarily invest in commercial and multifamily. Definitely more of a focus on multifamily right now. Nice. So mostly value add investment. Nice. Well, yeah. So I want to know, I want to know more about the value add, but first, how did you get into this? I mean, what was your beginning into real estate? Sure. I bought my first investment property back in 2007. And, uh, you know, in terms of how I got to that point, uh, I'd always had an interest in real estate and you know, I'd had some luck with my primary residence. I'd moved a lot, done some transactions that uh, went pretty well. I always like to fix up my properties. And a couple years prior to my first commercial investment, I had a change in careers. I went from the stepped off the corporate track and, and took a little bit of time off and started to teach. And I was teaching as a professor at the local college and got excited about what I saw and the opportunities and thought that real estate would be a good fit. Thought it might be a chance to supplement my income a little bit. And I started to look around and I looked at commercial multifamily and uh, eventually came across a 50,000 square foot office building, which was <laughs> probably a little more than I had intended to, to uh, bite off at that point in time. But the more I looked into it, the more interested I got. And uh, it was a property I eventually put under contract. And um, it was a long, drawn-out process. I put it under contract in September 2006, and I ended up closing in uh, May or June the following year. Nice, nice. Yeah. Well, so what, what were you teaching, by the way? Uh, I teach business. I was teaching marketing and entrepreneurship. Okay, right cool. on. And so you basically decide, okay, you know, real estate might be the way to go. Yep. And instead of going out and buying a house or, you know, buying a duplex or just, you know, you, you decided to buy a 50,000 square foot office space. Which there you go. <laughs> is, I mean, not the typical path of the average BP member. Um, right. Why commercial and why office? You know, I think um, just having dealt with my single family residence and I, I had done a little bit of leasing when I moved at one point in time and, and uh, I just... I said, if I'm going to invest into real estate and I'm going to do this, I felt like buying that larger property would give me a better return. And, and, and a lot of the, and I still today, I feel like a lot of the basic principles behind it are exactly the same. So I just started to read a lot of books. I started to talk to a lot of people and I, I did a lot of learning along the way. But, you know, I, I also did a lot of careful research. And uh, the more I looked at this property, the more excited I got. And, you know, it was, it was a property that had been on the market for a few years and the price had just kept dropping. It was the last property and the company that owned it was from outside the area. They had originally held an entire portfolio in, in uh, upstate New York, which is where I live. And this was their last property that they hadn't been able to sell. And uh, it was losing money for them hand over fist. Sounds like a great property to buy, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a few years is, is you know, somebody in, in residential hears that they're, they're going to lose their mind. Um, 
why, why would a property take a few years to sell? I mean, obviously price has something to do with it, but was there something else going on? Yeah, I, I think the, the number one thing was that it, it was actually losing money for them and nobody wanted to touch it. So they kept dropping the price. But, you know, I walked through and I was amazed at the things I saw right out of the gate. It was a, architecturally, it was a beautiful property. It was well located. It had a huge parking lot in a downtown area where there, there was very little parking. Yet there was trash everywhere. There was signs all over the place that it wasn't being taken care of. And from talking to local realtors, they refused to show space there because they didn't think they were going to get paid. Oh, wow. Um, it wasn't being well taken care of. And when I first when I first entered negotiations, and it was late summer, I'd go there on days where it was really hot outside and all the windows would be wide open. Air conditioning would be cranking. And I looked down through the the line items in the in the expenses and I'd see utilities right up there. I'd see labor right at the top and, and I got to meet the maintenance guy. He was sort of you know hard to find, but I tracked him down and he was in his wood shop on the property refinishing nice. furniture. Nice. And uh, with his Playboy pinups up on the wall and <laughs> um, you know, I'd ask him about all that trash outside and you know, he he didn't want to be bothered. So so you kept um, him keeping it professional for the long run, right? He's your long-term employee yeah, now. He, he almost made it through the first day. Oh, <laughs> almost. Uh, <laughs> so these, th- this, all this bad stuff. I mean, you talked about being excited. So I did. Every, this, every time I saw something that was mismanaged, I get more and more excited, and it's exactly. the same today. You know, in the winter time, it was the exact same thing. I got to figure out that when the winter time came. He would crank up this massive boiler, turn it on high, and the way the temperature got controlled was to uh, each tenant was supposed to open their windows and adjust the temperature. Of course, in the springtime, you turn the boiler off and you turn the AC on, and then everybody does the same thing. Right? Wow! Oh my gosh! So you know, I I had a lot of people try to talk me out of doing it, and I'm not going to say there wasn't some concern and some fear because I'm really trying to figure everything out. But I went down through that expense line and I got pretty excited that I could make that property cash flow positive on the first day. And, you know, and, and on that first day, I had that maintenance guy walk me over to the thermostat and I said, I need you to show me how to program this. He told me it was locked and he didn't know how to unlock it. And <laughs> that was pretty much the end of him. Uh, I called the manufacturer of the thermostat. They told me how to unlock it. I programmed it so that it would be actually run off of the thermostat and would adjust, uh, turn down on weekends and evenings. And I, I cut the utility bill in half in the first year. Wow. Uh, and so, I, and I dropped the expenses by $40,000 a year by letting him go. So, <laughs> so letting him go and the thermostat. I mean, I'm I'm guessing the utilities yeah. alone probably brought it close to break even. Yeah, yeah. I actually letting him go on day one uh, got me able to cover the bills, and I knew that was going to happen. And uh, everything after that was on the plus side. I as soon as it went, as soon as actually it was reported in the papers that I purchased the property, I had calls coming in because people were interested in space there. They just the prior owner hadn't taken care of it. And um, once people knew it was under local ownership, 
they had an interest and I started to, the, the property was about half full when I bought it. And within a year I had it full. That's awesome. That's awesome. What size town are you, is this in? Is this a big area or a small one? Like city? Uh, it's pretty small. Watertown. We actually, a year or two ago became a metropolitan statistical area. You have to hit 50,000. So I think the city itself is probably a little over 30, but the you know, with the surrounding areas, it's about a 50,000, you know, population metropolitan area. No dunk. <laughs> it is, it is. But, you know, it's, there's huge advantages to doing business here. You yeah. know, I, I, I don't have to face the competition that I would face if I moved into a larger metropolitan area. So I can get properties with superior returns that I might not be able to find in a more competitive place. Makes Got sense. Makes sense. You know, in my town, no, obviously the town I live in has like 3,500 people. And then my county has, you know, 50 or 60,000. But the little town I live in, uh, you know, if a person buys a commercial building downtown, some of them have been empty for yeah. 10 years, you know, with four rent signs in the window. And that that is my fear right. of why I don't want to buy commercial in my area, at least, because I'm worried about it sitting there forever. So how did you overcome that fear of not being able to get it rented? I think one of the biggest ways was just by looking carefully at the competition. You know, I had to, I, in the way I financed this actually is I uh, assumed the seller's mortgage. Really? And uh, in, order to, in order to do that, I had to write a business plan for the bank and convince them that I could turn this property around. And as part of that process, I went out, looked at all the competition, knew what they were charging and knew how this property compared. And I felt pretty confident that I could compete and fill it with tenants. That's fascinating. Nice. Did you have to put a down payment? First of all, can you explain what that means to assume the loan? And then, and then did you have to put a down payment as well? So yeah, to assume the loan, the actually the seller, it was, it was pretty interesting because initially I really thought this, this property would be beyond my reach, but I, that didn't deter me from digging into it and looking around and, in the course of negotiations, you know, I, I think they were asking around 1.3 to 1.4 million dollars at the time, and uh, you know, I, I had uh, negotiated down to around maybe uh, 1.1 somewhere in that range. And in the course of that, I learned a little bit about the the seller's situation and the seller's financing. And that's actually a, a tip that I would share with your listeners is the more you can learn about the financing of the seller, the more that opens up opportunities for you to explore ways to finance yourself or to understand the seller's motivations. And what I found out was that the seller had a had an, an ugly mortgage, a mortgage that would the seller would incur about a $250,000 penalty for paying off early. Ooh. And they had, they had priced that in because they knew they needed that. And when I started digging into it, I asked them, I said, well, is there any way that you could assume this mortgage? And they were like, yeah, but you'd, you'd have to go through this lengthy, rigorous process. You'd have to pay for these reports to be done and, you know, an appraisal and a, and a phase one environmental and, and all these steps. And you wouldn't know until the end unless then if the bank is going to approve you or not. And I decided to, to give it a try. I decided to go for it. And I said, listen, if I get this, if I can get the bank to let me take over your mortgage and they approve that, then I want the price knocked down by what I saved you. And they agreed to that. And they also agreed. I looked around. And I said, hey, it's pretty clear this place hasn't been taken care of. And under the terms of their mortgage, they had a reserve in place that the bank had required that they built up over time, which is designed for the bank to ensure 
that you're setting aside money to make repairs. And I said, I want the balance of your reserve account. And they agreed to that as well. Wow. So by the time I assumed the mortgage and got a credit for their reserve account, I did have to come up with some money out of pocket, but not a lot. Wow. So I, I, I bought the property, but the cash, you know, in, in order to purchase this million dollar property, I ended up putting in less than a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. 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 Hey, Brian. So you, you talked about all the paperwork and, and things you had to do. What did that cost? The environmental and, and everything else? Right. We're, we're looking at probably around $20,000. Okay. So you total 20,000 into that. And then yeah. you had, the rest was, was down payment, basically right. 80 grand right. plus or minus. Right. Got, got it. Um, so you've got this, the seller, you know, they've got a need, they've got this 250 in reserves they're supposed to maintain. They couldn't maintain it. And so you talked them down um, right. and said, basically, if I can save you, if, I mean, if they were going to sell it, they'd have that 250 prepay. Was that what it was? Exactly. Okay. So, exactly. so you basically, were they, did they give you that 250 credit or did they give you less than the 250? You said, you know what, I, I'm going to save you two, you know, if you sell it, you know, yeah. right now it's going to cost you 250. I want 200 as a credit. It was a little bit less. Okay. You know, I made sure we both benefited and that way they came out a little bit ahead and I, I came out a lot ahead. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, so, well, sounds like a great negotiation. So, you've got this property. You come in day one. You fire the guy. You figure out the heat and everything else. And how did how did you um, how did you get the building back into shape? Did you hire a new maintenance guy to take over, or did you do the work yourself? Did it myself. I really? uh, you know I I would. You know, one of the benefits of having a teaching schedule, it's a little forgiving, right? So I purchased the property right around when school let out. So I, for that initial period of time, I could work full time on the real estate. And I just, I, I, you know, I did it about, I did it one suite at a time, one room at a time where I'd go out and find that tenant. And each, each time I identified a tenant, it was a separate project where I would fix the space up uh, to meet their requirements and uh, just little at a time turned everything around. And it was noticeable. Everybody, because it's a smaller community, you know, just by going out front, cleaning up the trash, doing the landscaping, you know, I was in there first thing in the morning before anybody else was there. I would walk the entire property, pick up every little piece of trash right down to cigarette butts. And I made sure that people could see that it was under new ownership and it was going to be taken care of professionally. And almost all my tenants came from word of mouth. Nice, nice. Well, yeah. um, b- before we get into, I know we want to talk about the management of it. Um, what kind of returns were you looking for and are you getting them? And then I'm going to kind of also ask about the numbers if you're willing to share them on, uh, on this property. Well, I, I generally, you know, that, that first property was a greater risk than I'm normally willing to take at this point. Like I really want strong cash flow. And even with this property not being cash flow positive, before I agreed to move forward, I knew that I, I had to identify a way to make sure it was cash flow positive right out of the gate. I like to have capitalization rates. And I know some of your prior guests have talked about that, but that's basically your return, not including your mortgage payment. Once you subtract your expenses out from that rental income, um, I like to have a capitalization rate, ideally of 10% or higher, although I have paid as low as nine when I've identified opportunities to dramatically improve a property right after closing. 
This property, it, it did go up in value right away. I own it today. I now have my company's headquarters office located in that property. And uh, so I haven't sold it. I have refinanced it. And, um, you know, that's, that's, I'm, I'm a buy and hold investor. And that's part of how I finance my, my other deals is I, I refinance properties that I improve the value on. Gotcha. So what are gross rents on that property? Gross rents are around $700,000, which is uh, over twice what they were when I bought it. With 100% occupancy or somewhere thereabout? Yeah, it's not 100% right now, but it's it's in the 90s. All right, so we'll do the math. What's this property worth today then? Uh, not sure. <laughs> Substantially more than I paid for it. How's that? I mean, if, if you're at a 10 yeah. cap, it's worth what? Yeah, it's... Uh, you know, it's, it's probably in the, around $3 million. Whoa, that's great. That's great. I love that. Yeah. That's the power of that value add investing stuff. You know, like you mentioned that earlier and I said I wanted to come back to it. So the idea of right. when you can improve the income on a property or decrease the expenses or both, right, you, you right. add value to those commercial properties. That, so can we talk about that a little bit? Just like, is yeah, that what value absolutely. Add investing is? Is that what you mean by that? It is. I value add has two sides, right? So it, the great thing about commercial properties and multifamily properties is that you have a very clear way to calculate what it's worth. You don't have to necessarily rely on on comps or things like that. When you can boost the income from the property, then you improve the value of that property. So you have two sides to that equation. You have income and you have expenses. And so what you wanna do is as much as possible, identify ways to boost that income or lower those expenses before you pull the trigger on the property. That said, you shouldn't count on that and you shouldn't pay for that. And if it, and if a seller says, hey, you know, and this is a really common one, I, I'm, you know, I've got below market rents. You can just bump your rents up, right? You should pay more for this property. My answer is go ahead and bump them up and come back and talk to me when you get it done. The buyer shouldn't pay for what's not there. And that said, you value a property based on what's there. But if you're a value add investor, you identify ways that after the transaction, you can go in and make those changes. And sometimes they require a lot of hard work. And there's oftentimes a reason why somebody hasn't done it. And the best investment opportunities that I found are usually from out of town investors, right? You, you can see a property isn't well taken care of. You have absentee landlord. And so when I look at a property, I'm, I'm looking for things like in the, on the income side, maybe the rents aren't where they should be for the marketplace. Uh, maybe it's not being taken care of very well. Maybe it doesn't show very well. Maybe it could command rents if somebody just took care of it. And on the expense side, a lot of times you can find, you see waste. You see that it's not being taken care of. Well, you know that right away you can go step in and unlock the thermostat and, you know, program it so that it turns down at night. That was a tough one. Yeah, it was really tough. (laughs) You know, you know, and it's funny because people think, oh, just because you're buying a large commercial property, everything has to be, you know, all complicated. But it it really doesn't. You know, I, I didn't, you know, when I walked into the utility room at that property, it might as well have been the inside of a spaceship for all I was concerned. I mean, I was looking around. I didn't, I didn't know what any of it was. It was really impressive looking. Um, but I do know that when it's really, really cold out and really, really hot out, the windows shouldn't be open. <laughs> Come so, on, Captain Obvious. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, that's what I'm looking for. And, and uh, 
as a value add investor, once you can step in and, um, you know, I, I try to mitigate my risk by buying properties that are cash flowing, but then have that upside. And uh, I have been as as my portfolio has grown, I've stepped out there and, and been taking bigger and bigger risks in terms of tackling properties that do need a lot of work. Gotcha. Gotcha. And we'll, we'll chat about that in a, in a minute. Um, I just want to kind of go back, you know, on the value stuff that we were talking about, I had asked you gross rents. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't actually calculate the value based on gross rents. You have to right. calculate it based on the income. Um, but uh, we didn't, we didn't kind of go there, but it's basically you're multiplying your NOI times your, your cap. So, you know, assuming you're, you're running about a 50% expense ratio on this property then. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Okay, right on. And which is which is interesting because we talk about the fifty percent rule on bigger pockets, and there's people who freak out and say, "No, fifty percent doesn't make sense." Well, I think it's it's a pretty safe bet, and and I think it does apply even across commercial, where I think you'll see fifty to sixty percent plus even uh, on lots of properties. Would would you say that the uh, the bulk of the the commercial properties that you're working on are in that range? I think 50% is a good number. I think there's a lot of variables when in, in the commercial side, a, a lot of times you see things structured differently. So for example, if you have what investors call a triple net property where all of the expenses get passed on to the tenant, then your expenses as the landlord can be substantially lower. But it really depends on the property. And I think 50% is a, a good number when it get, drops below that. I, you know, I tend to, you'll often find that maybe the owner isn't spending money on things they should be. Um, and if it gets too much higher than that, there might be places to save. In my portfolio, we do run higher than that. We do it intentionally. We have a very firm commitment. I'm religious about investing almost all of my income back into my properties and my portfolio. And that's kind of ironic since I first got into this to uh, maybe get a little extra cash flow, but when I actually took the leap and took my savings and put it into this property, I just couldn't bring myself to pull money out because I knew that if this was going to be successful, every dollar I put back in would improve the likelihood and the performance. And it's something I've followed to this day. Um, I, I, I invest invest the vast majority back in. Right on. If, yeah. If you, if you actually sit down and, and run numbers and calculate what your return can be if you continue to, to plow money back into your portfolio, you'll realize it's how costly it is to pull money out. And, and I understand yeah. you know, people have a lot of different motivations for, for investing in real estate, but people should never forget that you know, because of the leverage that you have in real estate, and compound interest that you have and you can achieve in real estate by investing back in long term when you take a dollar out now you may be taking you know fifty dollars away from yourself five years down the road yep hey brian i know brandon wants to jump in I'm, i just have a really really quick follow-up on that and that is how did where does that money go so i mean at mm-hmm. at some point this building's been improved you know the tenants have a, a great place office offices that they want uh, how do you keep yep. plowing money back into the building where does it actually go so the money goes um, a couple of different places, but one of the large ones is it grows the portfolio, right? So 
at some point, you, you do reach a point where you get diminishing returns by plowing that money back into the same property. But if we go back to that first property that I bought, you know, I, I at different points went back in there. I converted two old um, locker rooms into offices. I converted cold storage into class A office space. Um, I found ways and continue to find ways to improve the property and get decent returns by putting money back in. But at the same time, that's how I pay for my next deal, right? So that, that money I can, I can step in, get, get a property appraised again and refinance it and pull some cash out and, and make that next investment. Right on. Yeah. I love it. Well, to go back to your, your, what you were saying about, uh, uh, the exponential growth, right? About sinking your money back in. So when I was right. 27, you know, I, uh, I quit my job because I was like, oh, I have enough money. I don't need to work anymore. Cause I had, just, I mean, not, I wasn't right. rich, but I had income coming in from the cash flow from the properties and I could just kind of maintain them myself and it was fine. I never right. had to work again. And it took me like, I don't know, a few weeks, maybe, maybe a month or whatever, where I, I started doing the numbers and realized if that's what I did for the rest of my life, I would never build any greater wealth or at least very, very slowly because all of the profit was yeah. just going into my pocket and paying my, you know, utility bill and mortgage. Right. You know, like I wasn't like, I wasn't taking that and put plowing it back in. And so that's when I kind of said, yeah. okay, well, this is stupid to live off my cash flow all the time. Uh, you know, especially being a young person with the cash flow, I didn't, I wasn't needing to sit and retire and yeah. watch soaps all day. So that's when I decided, yeah, I'm not going to live off my cash flow anymore. And I switched my strategy up a little bit to say, okay, I'm going to plow everything mm-hmm. that I get either into improvement properties, paying off mortgages or buying new properties. Uh, one of the three. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, um, I, I kept my day job for my, the first seven years of investing. And by that point I had, I had a lot of properties and it consumed a lot of time. And, uh, I, I, I just held off as long as I could because I knew that if I wanted to continue to grow, it was going to pay me back later. And, uh, like I said, everyone's, everyone's investing in real estate for different reasons, but if you can be okay with that delayed gratification and, and really be disciplined about investing back in, it puts you at a tremendous advantage over, over other investors. Because yeah. the truth of the matter is the vast majority of people investing in real estate do not invest back in. And it gives me a huge competitive advantage over, say, an institutional investor. Because when they raise money to do a deal, they're counting on pulling cash out and paying people back right away. And that, that money, if they were to turn around and instead invest that back in, that can grow and achieve returns that are far superior than when you're siphoning off cash. I love that, man. That's great. What a, what a great philosophy. Yeah. Really, really good. Well, well so let's, let's shift over to, to management. Um, mm-hmm. And, and uh, do, are you managing yourself? Do you have in-house management? You were, you were doing your own maintenance back in the day. Yeah. What are, tell us about the, the management side <laughs> of the picture. Yeah, so it was interesting because as one of, the, one of the criteria to assume that initial mortgage, the bank came back and said, uh, you don't have any experience. We require you to outsource management. And uh, I had a lot of trouble finding qualified management. And in the end, I found a firm, but I ended up doing almost all of it myself. And it was it was because I cared too much. Like I couldn't, they, they, no one looks at your bills and no one negotiates deals the way you would if it's your property. 
Um, and I, as soon as I could, I initially, I, I renegotiated the deal with a management firm. I said, listen, I'm doing it all anyway. You know, you're just here for the bank's purposes. And I, and I nego- <laughs> renegotiated it down. And as soon as I could, I, I switched completely over to self-management and that's what we've done ever since. And I just don't think that you can expect anyone to treat your property as well as you do yourself. And yeah, I find it all fascinating because coming coming out of the business world into real estate and, and um, I, I still think it was a... Uh, kind of a, a benefit in disguise that I really knew didn't know what the heck I was doing. Because what I did know is I did know how to run a business. And I knew about customers. I knew about customer service. I knew about having a product that people wanted. And, um, you know, it's it's fascinating to me how many people, and, and you can invest in real estate as as passive income. It, it's a, it can be a great tool for that. But, um it's, it's just fascinating that in real estate, people think that you can, it's, it's so broadly acceptable to outsource management and it's really a business. If, if, you, if you're doing what I'm doing or what a lot of people in, in real estate investment are doing, you are running a business and you, know, it, you don't see people who own flower shops outsourcing to flower shop management companies. You know, you don't, you don't see, you know, salons outsourcing to salon management companies. And yet, if you look at, you know, in my eyes, some of the people with the greatest experience in this area are, are franchisers. And if you look at the requirements that franchisers have, very few of them will allow absentee ownership. And if there's a reason for that, it's because based on seeing thousands of investors, they know that there's a much higher likelihood of failure if the owner is not present. And you're going to see better returns, far better returns if you invest yourself and your time into your properties and you take care of them as your own. It's super hard to find people that have the pride and to just do things the way you would do them yourselves. So for that reason, I'm not a big fan of it. I understand why people do it and I respect why people do it, but people have to understand that when you when you outsource management, you have to accept that you're going to get a, a a lower return. You're not going to get the level of management that you yourself might provide and you're also siphoning off more cash and sending it to the management firm. Yeah, I I love that. I fully agree. Um what does management even look like right now for you? You know, like, I mean, what does it look like to manage that property, the one that we're talking about? And then we'll move on and talk about your other properties, but what does that even look like to manage that property now that it's full? I mean, you're not fixing toilets and things anymore, I would assume, or are you? Uh, no, I've got, um, I've got 11 employees. Five of them are uh, on the maintenance side of the house. Two of them are on leasing. And, um, you know, the, the rest are different administrative functions. But... Uh, you know, we manage, you know, in addition, we've, we've been more focused over the last couple of years on multifamily. I'd say over the last three years, that's been our primary focus. We've got about 400 units that we, we manage. Wow. And um, we do, you know, that's commercial is about probably 40 to 45% of our portfolio right now. And uh, we manage all of it with a staff of 11. Wow. Okay. So you, wow. sw- you yeah. kind of transition to the to the large, was it large multifamily? Is that what, you know, like big apartment complexes, I'm assuming? Yeah. I mean, we have uh, a handful of smaller ones, but, um, you know, most of them are, you know, anywhere from, from 20 to 70 some odd units. And, um, we do have one HUD property 
And uh, that has some, it's, it's a multi-site property. That's the only property we have that we outsource management because the knowledge and specialization for HUD is, is something that we decided we, we just weren't keeping in house. Uh, but we work really closely with them and, um, you know, keep an eye on what's going on there as well. Wow, that's fantastic. Okay, so let's dive into that a little bit on those on those properties. I mean, how did you, uh, first of all, how do you find them? I mean, how are you financing them? Are they all your own money? Are you raising money? I mean, how does this, how does that, how does your business work now? Okay, in terms of finding them, uh, we've got a great relationship with area brokers. We've worked hard to get a good reputation with them. We pay them well, value broker services. I've found that it's, that it's a strategic advantage to me to not be a broker. I like to go directly to the selling brokers, and um, I found that they are highly motivated to strike a deal with you when they get to keep the entire commission. So, you know, it, I think that once you gain some experience, that you can do that. And I find that as soon as I tell a broker that I am not a broker, that I'm an investor, that I'm a buyer. They treat me in a, in a different way and they're more responsive and they fight harder to, to make a deal. And um, so by allowing them to get that extra money, I get better deals. So that, but that's that tip, said, that trend, well, and I was yeah. say, that's a tip that goes to anybody, whether you're residential or commercial. Uh, sometimes, right. I mean, sometimes maybe you want to have your own agent. I mean, I have my own agent, but sometimes it can be extremely beneficial to just work with the selling agent because of that double commission kind of thing that, you know, they're making twice as much money. They're twice as, uh, you know, motivated to sell to you. So, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, so I get some of my tenants and some of my properties through brokers, but actually more of them I get on my own. So, um, what I, I, of course I monitor all the typical ways that, that people get properties. I watch for new listings. I, you know, I sign up for alerts, et cetera, et cetera. But what I do that I think might be a little bit different is I am constantly looking for properties that I would want to own. And I don't care if they're for sale or not. As soon as I identify a property that I want to own, I find out who the owner is and I contact them and I introduce myself and I let them know that I have an interest. And if they ever reach a point that they're willing to sell, I'd like to talk to them. And I've gotten a lot of properties that way. And it's a great way to get that perfect property. And a lot of people, they think that a property is not for sale. Everything's for sale. So, and and very, very few people are upset to have someone come up and say, Hey, I like your property. I, you know, if you're ever interested in selling, you know, I'd I'd be interested. Most people are, are, are warm and receptive to that. Um, Take it, take it as a compliment. I mean, they take it as, Hey, I've got something that you're interested in. And especially um, in the commercial field. Because, you know, they're all investors. Well, it's business. Yeah, it's business. So yeah. There's a number for everyone. I mean, I, I can't go buy the guy's house across the street necessarily because there's no number. I mean, there may be a number, but, you know, he's not right. motivated. But investors are generally willing to sell. And so, yeah, people that are listening to this, if yeah. you are trying to buy a multifamily of any kind or commercial, it's all for sale. <laughs> like, just look yeah, at that yeah, exactly. Well, it takes Fine. the emotion out of the picture is the nice thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, find find the property that's in the best location. Find the property that you know, and and look for those signs that maybe it isn't being taken care of. You see that upside, you know, and and reach out to it, whoever's uh, you know whoever the owner is. Yeah, same I, thing. I, with, same thing with tenants. You can you don't, you don't have to wait for someone who's looking uh, for a house or an office or a retail space. Go to the tenant that you think would be perfect and say. 
you know, how would you like to come live here? Or how would you like to move your office here? Yeah. Uh, so I once read a real estate book. I don't remember what book it was now, but the guy talked about how he would put on overalls or like a, a work jumpsuit, like he's a maintenance guy, and he would go to large apartment <laughs> complexes and ask tenants things like, uh, I heard there's a problem around here I'm supposed to be looking at. Do you know where that's at? And then just the <laughs> what the issue is, you know, like, oh, yeah, the thing's broken over there and that thing yeah. sucks over there and that. And they think he's a maintenance guy and he would find out all the problems. <laughs> and then he could go and make an offer based on, hey, I know this is wrong. This is wrong. This Brilliant. Is wrong. Yeah, what funny? a great idea. Uh, yeah. I haven't broken out the overalls yet, but maybe I will. <laughs> yeah, you might have to after that one. Man. That's a great tip, Brandon. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there you go. Uh, uh, cool. So in terms of you asked how I finance them, yeah. um, I mean, the majority of the deals, the cornerstone is bank, bank financing, but I, I work really hard to try to make sure I'm putting in as little cash as I can. And there's lots of different ways you can, you can go about doing that. You know, I, working with a bank is, is, it could be, it could be difficult or it can be great. You know, when I, after I assumed that first mortgage, I spent the next two years trying to get mortgages, trying to refinance a property and I got nothing but no's. And eventually, then my second property, I had, I actually got that through owner financing, and uh, still did, still wasn't able to get a bank to work with me. Uh, it wasn't until my third property that I actually got a bank to say yes. And once I had the first bank say yes, it became easier to get the other ones to say yes. And I've got a great, and now I have a great working relationship with a local bank, and uh, it's great to work with them. But if you want to maximize your returns. You need to look for ways to reduce the amount of cash you're putting in, and you need to be careful about that. You know, I remember I'm a value-add investor, so I've usually identified, you know, a handful of ways to improve value right after closing and keep my equity where it needs to be and not overextend myself. But that's another advantage of commercial and the multifamily projects is that it's more accepted or expected or even customary that they may extend a piece of owner financing. And a lot of times it's hard to find somebody who would say, well, yeah, I'll finance the whole thing because not, not a lot of people own a property outright. But when they're trying to sell and you're prepared to secure 75% bank financing and you ask them to carry 5% or 10% or even 15 a lot of times people will be much more receptive to that. And so even if I don't lead with that in a negotiation, I'll often counter with that. So maybe I lead with a, with a more aggressive price and they counter. And when I come up, I say, okay, I'll come up, but maybe you, maybe you carry a note back for 5% or 10%. So there's, you know, and the other thing that I do is I, I, I try to be creative. I try to understand their financing. Like I've done multiple deals where I've gotten a credit back because they are carrying a reserve account or for deferred maintenance and, Timing can be important on a, on a commercial or a multifamily deal in terms of what time of the month you're closing the deal. And uh, so, for example, if you can close, say, on the fourth or the fifth of the month, standard terms of an agreement would give you a credit at closing for the balance of that month's rent. And if it's a commercial deal, you don't need to keep the uh, deposits separate. So whereas in, a, in, a, in a, an apartment or in a, a residential transaction, you actually have to take those security deposits and you can't touch them. You put them in separate accounts. If you do a commercial deal and sometimes between the prorated rent and the security deposits, 
you might get 5% of your deal covered at closing out of prorated rent and security deposits. Yeah. And that can save you a lot of cash. Yeah, that's a great tip. I love that. I've never that's actually really done, great. I haven't done much of that. I've, I always hear about that, but I've never done a deal big enough. I thought it was really important to do. I mean, I guess maybe on the 24 unit, I did a little bit. But yeah, when you schedule the days correctly, you can get credited back and yeah, some cool stuff there. Love yeah, it. Anything, anything. And anything you can carve out, if you look through the terms of a, of a closing and if, you can, if there's any pieces of it that you can, as part of your negotiation, place onto the seller, you know, cash is precious. Just like, you, just by, like by not pulling that cash out, you, know, you, you improve your long-term return. The same thing goes at closing. So it's, it's not just in an ongoing you know, managing that property and that cash flow. It also is at the initial transaction. You want to minimize that cash. But like I said, you got to be really careful. You don't you don't want to leverage yourself to a point that you dig yourself a hole. And so I'm trying to be as careful as I can to make sure that I've got something tangible that I've identified that's going to improve my equity position after closing. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're trying to close on your next rental. So why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Are you about to sell a property? Wait like 60 seconds because this could save you thousands. Our friends at 1031 Pros have saved their clients more than half a billion dollars, with a B, in taxes with 1031 tax-deferred exchanges. With the 1031 exchange, you can say goodbye to the huge capital gains taxes when selling and roll your property's profit into another investment that could make you even more. Whether you're an individual investor, part of a larger group, or a title or real estate agent, 1031 Pros is ready to help. Trust me, I've done 1031 exchanges on multiple properties before, and it has saved me tens of thousands in taxes, if not more. With over 30 years of experience, 1031 Pros has handled over 20,000 audit-free exchanges. 
and they specialize in all types of exchanges, delayed, simultaneous, reverse, and improvement exchanges in all 50 states. And right now, BiggerPockets listeners can get $250 off any exchange by visiting my1031pros.com BP. That's my1031pros.com BP to get $250 off today. Oh, and make sure to mention BiggerPockets when you call. They take care of our people over there. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Hey, Brian, what, what would be your best tip for somebody who's um, you know, relatively new at this space and is looking to get commercial financing? What steps should they take to make sure their ducks are in a row? I mean, obviously, you, you tried to do that and couldn't get uh, typical financing, you said, in, in the early deals. Now that you've, you've learned the mm-hmm. ropes a little bit uh, better, you know, what, what can you do to be more successful or what could you have potentially done? Yeah, that's a that's a really hard question. I mean, for me, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge reader. I'm you know, I listen to podcasts. I listen I listen to Bigger Pockets. I love it. Um, you know, I <laughs> I I like to learn and I like to devour as much information as I can. And I that's probably my number one tip is learn because you need to be able to speak the language. Um, and do your homework. So you can a lot of it you can do on your own and you can get out there and talk to people, find somebody who's done what you want to do. I didn't have that that luxury. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it, I, I really wish I had been able to find somebody who had been through what I've been through back then. I think it would have helped a lot. So I'd say take advantage. Most people who've had some success in real estate are willing to help. Somebody reaches out. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, perfect. All right, man. So biggest mistakes, one or two, like, you know, what did what, you really screw up, man? Um, wow. It's a long list actually. Oh, yeah, we got a lot of learning, we got all day. Go, but, uh, you know, I, um, I, I had two projects in a row last year that, uh, the first one just really pushed the boundaries of adding value. And, um, you know, the second one, I, I sort of assumed it would play out like the first one and it didn't. So, you know, I'll start with the first one because I like that one better because that one actually worked out. So let's let's tell the good story first yeah. before we tell the one that's, you know, depressing. Um, <laughs> so uh, we had a property, uh, I guess this was about 18 months ago, came up for foreclosure auction locally, and it was a six-story apartment building. And uh, right adjacent to a couple of my other properties, right on the edge of a nice part of town, but this had been completely let go. You know, 
drug activity openly taking place in the hallways, uh, lights all smashed out, scary, scary place. Like my staff was actually, they were forbidden from going in there alone. Um, but, uh, we saw all the potential. So we, uh, we ended up going to the auction. We were the only ones that showed up (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, we got the property and was there a uh, reserve on this one, by the way? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we got it right at the right at the bare minimum. I think we 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 literally bid one dollar over the, the bank's reserve. Nice. Um, so uh, I, I think we were going up in one dollar increments until <laughs> until the bank representative said, "Just like, oh no, just here it is." Um, so anyhow, we we have the closing, and we're all a little nervous. And my staff was just pleading, please let, let's outsource the management on this one. You know, this, this, this is going to be scary. And, uh, I'm like, no, no, it's going to be fine. You know, nothing to worry about. We can do this. It's, you know, look at it's beautiful architecture, you know, everything's, it's going to be good. We just need to clean it out. So we go through closing and on that very first day, my property manager gets a call in less than an hour after closing, we got our first call from a tenant and, the center of this apartment building had an atrium that was five stories tall up to this, these uh, windows, skylights up at the top. And right in the middle of it was an exposed elevator to go up through the floors. And uh, the call came in, the complaint, the tenant said, uh, there's somebody standing on the fifth floor at the railing and they're urinating down on the top of the elevator. And uh, there was a vent, an open vent in the top of the elevator. And there there are people in the elevator. Oh, man. So right then I was like, oh, my God. What have I got? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm like what, what exactly do we do in this situation again? Oh yeah, we haven't encountered that before. Um, you know, so <laughs> you know that that was that was the first afternoon. The the next morning, um, I went in to tour the vacant units, and I get a I we start to hear just blood curdling screams from the floor above us, a woman screaming, help, help at the top of her lungs. So I race up the stairs and there's an apartment with the door wide open. And there's a guy standing there, this, this wiry skinny guy. And, uh, he's got jagged yellow teeth and he's got no shirt on baggy pants. And he's got a baseball bat in his hand. And he's like, what the bleep are you doing in here? You know, get the heck out of my apartment. And, uh, meanwhile, the woman who was screaming for help had stopped. And, uh, my property manager called 911 and, uh, I stayed in the doorway until the police showed up. So I go back downstairs, uh, police come down about five or 10 minutes later. And they're like, yeah, uh, his, uh, his obese wife had fallen in the tub and, got stuck and couldn't get out. So she started screaming for help to get out of the tub. And, uh, I was like, that's not what I, not what I expected. (laughs) (laughs) So so anyway, we, you know, we, same, same day we had a drug raid cleaned up. So this, that's the kind of place we, we bought. And, and we, what we did is we went in, we put lights up everywhere we put uh, surveillance cameras all over the place. We put a, a key fob lock system on the front door with security cameras facing both ways, tractor activity. 
we actually took our management offices, moved them into a vacant ground floor space and stayed in there while we refurbished each unit one at a time and dealt with the tenants. And after six months of stories like the ones I just shared and all kinds of crazy stuff that I probably never needed to see or you know, learn about, we turn the whole place around and it's wow. beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, so what percentage of the, of the tenants did you end up evicting? Because I mean, you would uh, need to kick a whole lot. Pro- probably 75%. Okay. Yeah. There were still a handful of really good tenants who were just so grateful that we came in and did what we did. They were living in fear, um, but it was their home and they lived there for a long time and they stayed, they were, they were paying rent. And we, you know, we, that's the other thing that was fantastic about this project is we actually had significant rental income coming in the entire time that was helping to fund all the improvements that we made. And, uh, the project was a, just a huge success. Really, Um, really quickly. How, how much did you need to rely on the authorities to, to help you? Because I would think a project like that, I mean, Surely there's going to be a lot of situations where, you know, there's he said, she says, there's verifications yeah. of who people are and the drug dealing. And I'm sure, you know, day one is, hey, officers, I'm the owner. We're going to try and clean this up, but we need your help. Well, yeah, we actually went into the police station and met um, with some folks there before we closed on the property and said, hey, this is what we're doing. We're going to need your help. And they were great, you know, but surprisingly, even though things started off really scary and exciting, um, once the cameras went up and the lights went up everywhere and we were there on site, a lot of the worst tenants left on their own. Um, They didn't like the idea of the cameras, you know, all the, all the stuff we were putting in made it not a good place for them to live anymore. And so a lot of the problems just went away on their own. Uh, we had we had some really bad tenants that we had some trouble getting rid of, and it wasn't a pleasant experience. We evicted a lot of tenants, but you know the worst of it was probably in the the, the shock both on our part and for the tenants of those first that first week or two. Nice, wow. good you- job, Joe Pesci. <laughs> and you, you said, you know, you just said a minute ago that, you know, it was a success. At the end, you could, you would define it as a success. Do you mind, like, yeah. you, don't, you don't have to share numbers necessarily if you don't want to, but like, you know, how worth it? I mean, was it worth it? All that trouble and all that hassle? Like, did you get a, I mean, do you have massive equity in it now today or is it achieving a ton of cash flow? Yeah, both. I mean, we have a ton of equity. We've got fantastic cash flow. But, you know, it's, it's not all about the money, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's rewarding, um, you know, helps keep you motivated to be able to go in and turn a property like that around. It's fun. I mean, maybe not so at the time sometimes, <laughs> but, you know, it gives you good stories to tell. And it, it's, but it's, you know, it's rewarding to go in and do something like that. And as part of why we, you know, not just myself, but um, the, the people on my team who actually do most of the work, they can take a lot of pride. You know, they hold their heads high and walk around and they, they're glad to be associated with a project like that because everybody knows, you know, that place was, you know, just not, not a safe place. And it's, it's, it's some place that people would really like to live now. Yeah. yeah. Hey Brian, you, you had a bad story. That was the good story, right? So really quickly, Damn. let's get the bad story. I'm sorry to call yeah. you out. Let's, <laughs> let's just fly through it. And then, yep. and then yep. uh, we're, we're going to start moving on to the next yep. part of the show. Yeah. So I was hoping you forget about that. Uh, I don't forget. Uh, 
But uh, yeah, so basically similar situation, smaller project. But in, in this situation, we made a decision to completely empty the property of the tenants because uh, it was a smaller project and things that were pretty far gone. So we, we got rid of the tenants. But when we got in there and we started to turn the units, we started to uncover problems with the infrastructure of the building. Um, started off with electrical, proceeded to plumbing, and once we started to dig behind the walls, we found all kinds of structural issues. And, uh, you know, the, the budget that we had set and the plans that we had set to turn that property around were, you know, they were gone quickly. And it was another property that we purchased at foreclosure. Um, so it had a lot of similarities. And I think coming off of a project that was so successful right on the heels of that, we just assumed that we could do the same thing. And uh, we took a risk and, you know, that that project is still ongoing, but it's it's definitely not going to be anywhere near as successful as the first one. And, um, you know, we learned learned a lot of hard lessons on that. Is there a way you could have avoided those problems? Is there anything you could have done or not really because it was at a foreclosure auction? It's tough. I mean, it's it's hard to say, you know, you don't want to second guess yourself, but uh, I think you got to, my advice would be to go in to a foreclosure situation where you have limited access to a property and you, you pretty much have to assume the worst. And uh, fortunately, my company's at a point right now where we can sustain a mistake like that. If it had been my first property or even one of my first five or six, um, it, it might've been my last. So Yeah, gotcha. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, I think that's really, really yeah. helpful for people. So, Agreed. Uh, all right. So the last question I kind of have today is, you know, where do you see your business going in the future? What What is next for Brian Murray? Well, so far, we've been pretty concentrated geographically in our projects. Um, you know, when I've taken the time to speak with people who've uh, done what I'm doing and, and uh you know, have you know, larger real estate portfolios. They look at what it, what uh, my properties look like and say, "Hey, you're taking on a lot of risk being so concentrated geographically." And that's the downside of my hands-on management approach. I want to be there, and you know, as a result, all of our properties to this point have been ones that I can drive to and keep an eye on and be actively involved in. But there's a risk with that. So if there's a downturn in the local economy or something happens. You know, I'd be well served to start looking to expand geographically. And I think in 2016, you know, and moving forward, we're going to be looking into other areas. All right. Right on. I like That's it. great. Cool. All right, cool. Let's move on to the world famous. It's time for the fire round. These questions come direct from Bigger Pockets members in the Bigger Pockets forums. And you can get there, not you, well, you and everyone listening at uh, biggerpockets.com slash forums. So, number one question. Well, the first question anyway. How can I tell if there is a demand for rentals in a given area? Well, you know, uh, part of what I recommend is um, having some some close familiarity with where you invest. And I know not, not everybody on your show has is, is sort of been a proponent of that, but particularly as um, you know, a new real estate investor, I really recommend, again, that like you invest somewhere that you know the area well. And um, you can invest as far away as you want, but your risks are going to be higher because there's more unknowns. And so 
familiarity with that local market, I mean, there's, there's really no substitute for that. So if you live in an area, you should know enough people and have your finger on the pulse of what's going on and, and know, you know, you, you can, you should have an idea uh, what the demand is. Right on. Yep. I agree with you completely. Yeah. So yeah, Josh, uh, like in, in your story back on podcast, like show 100, uh, Josh, you talked a lot about like that, you know, the, the disaster properties you had um, and you weren't local. Do you think that was, would have been, it would have turned out differently had you been local? Oh yeah, a thousand percent, thousand percent. You know, investing in your backyard, you can go, you can walk the property, you can drive the property, you can see what's going on. If you have to get on an airplane and and you know and jump through hoops to go and see your property, you know, it impedes your ability to quickly you know scout it, to scan it, to see what's going on, to see the neighborhood changes that you would normally mm-hmm. see. I mean, Brandon, you own the town of Montesano, Washington, right? So. <laughs> I mean, as mayor of Montesano, I by by the way, I dub the the new mayor of Montesano. Uh, I mean, you know, Mayor Ken wouldn't be real happy. No, yeah, well, Mayor Ken I'm doing his website for him. So yeah, uh, well, there you go. <laughs> well, Mayor Ken, listen, now, I, you know, you can you know the neighborhood, you see the changes, you see what's going on. You know, boots on the ground, as as everybody likes to say. I mean, it's so important. If you can't be there, you need somebody that you can absolutely trust implicitly to be there to be your eyes and ears. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, you've got to, you got to be there. I, you know, new investors, any new investors that are listening, I know that there's a lot of, um, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, uh, it's, it's easy to say, Hey, there, there's no properties right where I live. You know, I'm going to go invest, you know, thousands of miles away in, in Detroit. In, uh, I wouldn't have said that, but you know, it definitely wouldn't have been my first choice. Um, in these other towns, uh, and I'm going to use a management company, but that's fine. But you got to still know the town. You got to know enough to know if the management company is giving you the up and up or if they're full of it. You know, you've got to understand what you're dealing with um, or you can find yourself in trouble. So, yeah, um, I mean, I really, I think that's probably the best advice anyone can give is know the area very well. And, and that's why we talk about all the time on the show, you know, you, you don't have to invest thousands of miles away. There's not a single city in the United States where you cannot find deals within an hour, two hours away. Um, it's, there, there's, there's not a single one. So the need to go yeah, across the country is, just isn't there. But uh, anyway, enough about me and my rant. Uh, let's get back to Mr. Murray here and ask him uh, this next question, which is, what are the first questions to ask when speaking to a realtor or seller about a buy and hold property? I, I think the first thing you want to do is try to understand them um, and what are their priorities and what are they looking to achieve from this? You know, why, why are they selling? You know, that, I, I think that's the first step and um, that helps you to establish a rapport and get an understanding of the situation. And then that sets you up to start to probe in areas that are interesting to you. So put yourself second for a few minutes and then you can ask about income, expenses, things like that. I think another thing to do is to be careful to um, when, when you value a property to make sure you're using, using actuals. And so uh, you don't want to just take verbals and you don't, you want to try to avoid pro formas with the, which 
are the you know future projections for earnings and as much as possible get a you know get a current rent roll current information on rental income and get actual expenses for at least the prior year if not the prior two or three years yeah great advice love it love it all right next question i've got a real estate license 10 grand and good credit and i want to invest how should i get started give it to me <laughs> Well, you know, I think a lot of that depends on on what your goals are, but I I do think that people are too quick to count out commercial. You know, I think the the obvious answer, the quick answer most people give is to to look at a residential rental property, you know, but I I do think people should be open to commercial. I think it depends on what market you're in. I think it depends on how actively you want to be involved. Um, there's there's so many specifics, you know, that would, that would go along with that. But I, I think the sky's the limit, you know, don't limit yourself, go out there, you know, do your homework and figure out what's going to work for you. Love it. Right on, right on, right on. Our last question is, will the real estate market collapse in 2015? I actually read a really interesting article on Zero Hedge that they were just talking about, you know, it's just getting real frothy. And, and, and I agreed with much of what he was talking about. Uh, just curious what your take is. You know, um, for people who watch prices nationwide, and particularly in the multifamily sector, prices are really, really high right now. People are paying quite a premium on income. Uh, capitalization rates. People are willing to accept very low capitalization rates right now, um, historic lows. And I'm not sure that that's sustainable. It's caused, you know, my last project, because I couldn't find a reasonable return, we actually went out and bought a, um, a motel uh, or, or a hotel that was in financial distress and converted it to apartments because oh, wow. uh, we, we could get a better price and um, get the returns that we, we have to achieve. And uh, so we've been trying to be creative and, and looking in to do things like that. But it's becoming a challenge and it's, it's, you know, some of it will have to do with interest rates as lending rates get higher and most people think that they will continue to rise, you're going to need higher returns to pay your mortgages. And so when you demand higher returns and investors demand higher returns, then the asking prices need to drop. So my belief is that the the current levels are probably not sustainable, but I don't necessarily believe that there's going to be some precipitous crash. So um, I say go forward with caution, but I'm still an optimistic investor. Right on, right on. And let me just ask really quickly, so you bought this motel, did you have like a giant black light as you went through it? No, <laughs> um, it, it uh, you know it was another turnaround project, and uh, it's gone it's gone pretty well. We we uh, we converted it into forty eight studio apartments, and um, you know we just finished the renovations uh, earlier this month, and we're we've got twenty of them leased up, and so we're we're focused on that right now. But uh, it was an interesting project. And, um, you know, I think you'll see other investors try to do, you know, things like that if prices don't start to come down on, on the multifamily. Right on. Right on. Yeah. That's smart. I love that. I love that. Yeah, great idea. So cool. All right. Well, let's move on and uh, cover the world famous. Famous for. All right. These questions we ask every guest every week. And I know you listen to our show, so you know what's coming. Number one, 
What is your favorite real estate related book? Okay, so I have a lot of trouble with this question. I, I'll just tell you guys, I read tons and tons of books and I haven't ever read a book that I don't disagree with some of the stuff and agree with other stuff. So tough to pick one out, but um, I decided I would go with The Complete Guide to Buying and Selling Apartment Buildings by Steve Burgess. So I personally found this to be a very helpful uh, resource as I learned about multifamilies, which has been my focus uh, more so over the last few years. And um, actually, the fundamentals behind multifamily, exactly the same as commercial. So you can read books on one and, and learn a lot about the other. So, so I have two copies my... of that book because I like it so much. All right. <laughs> like, yeah, I love Good. that book. So. Why, why do we need two copies? Of I don't the know. Same I, just, book? I found them two on my bookshelf. And I'm, like, <laughs> I, I well, I'm going to read version two tonight. Just, like, just in case, just in case you changed. lose the first one. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They're actually different covers. So I must have bought them at different times and then like not realized. Because <laughs> I remember reading when I read through the, like I, I bought the new book and I was reading, like, man, this sounds so familiar. I feel like I've read this before. And on the second copy, so yeah, clearly I had. Yeah. Anyway, nice. yeah, cool. Good right on. Our favorite business book. Um, I'm I'm a huge Rich Dad Poor Dad fan, but I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna go with that because you know everybody everybody has that. So um, I'm gonna go with Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff. Richard Carlson. Yep. Uh, Love that book, man. Great, I never read great that. book. Great book to put by your nightstand and just you know flip open and and uh, read a few pages every day. Um, You know, help help keep you looking at things straight. So yeah, that is a really good book, Brandon. You should probably read it. I probably should. I will. I will. All right. That was great. All right. What about hobbies? What do you do for fun? Love my real estate. It's fun. You know, (laughs) it's fun. Real estate. uh, But yeah, no, I'm I'm a big uh, I'm a big distance runner. So you know, how far do you run? Like. Uh, my wife and I run marathons, so wow. we try to try to do at least one a year, and uh, maybe throw a few half marathons in there. But it's a uh, it's a great way to you know healthy outlet, get some good exercise, clear your head. You no know, triathlons, and, you don't you don't do that. I mean, I mean, it seems kind of weak no, just to do a marathon. No, no I'm, I I float like a rock, so uh, <laughs> I can't I can't I can't swim. And, uh, but yeah, the running's fun. It's easier. Can't fall off anything. So there you go. It's good. All right. My last question for the day. What do you believe sets apart successful real estate investors from those who give up, fail, or never get started? Okay. So for this one, best answer that I've heard is I'm going to steal it from, uh, somebody named Angela Lee Duckworth. And she's a psychology professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and she actually dedicates herself to studying success and, and what makes people successful. And she went out and did all these complicated studies that I'm not smart enough to understand. And uh, she came back, she looked at corporate salespeople, West Point cadets, school children, everybody, and she came back and found out that the single most important factor in determining success was grit. Um, so my answer is grit and, uh, she defines grit as grit is passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. Grit is having stamina. Grit is sticking with your future day in, day out, not just for the week, not just for the month, but for years and for working really hard to make that future a reality. Grit is living life. Like it's a marathon, not a sprint. I love that. And I agree a thousand percent. 
Love it. Yeah. Love it, man. All right. Let's, uh, let's let you go. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, you, I, you know, you can reach me on bigger pockets. I'm, I'm also active on LinkedIn. And, uh, so you can reach me through either of those. My company's website is washingtonstreetproperties.com. It's all spelled out washingtonstreetproperties.com. And, um, so you can either reach me through any of those, um, forums. Awesome. Awesome. Brian, listen, man, you know, for, for the, for the listeners again, this, this is our third attempt at doing this, uh, this show. The first one, we had some bad internet on one side, the second we had it on another and alas, you know, uh, we had uh, some issues today, but phenomenal show. Absolutely phenomenal. One of my favorites by far. And I'm not just saying that cause I got you on here. I really, really loved it. Lots of great tips. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. We really do appreciate it. Oh, thank you guys so much. Like I said, I'm a huge fan and it was an honor to be here today. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks, Brian. Around, I'm sure. Okay. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right, guys. That was Brian Murray on the Bigger Pockets podcast. Wow. Good stuff, man. I mean, yeah. Seriously, like loving, loving the stories. Yeah. I, I love that apartment complex stuff and like the idea of value add investing, all that stuff. I'm, I mean, that's where I want to head someday. And I think you're the same way. Like that's where oh, we want to, yeah. yeah. Like someday I see myself doing, you know, 100, two, three, 400 unit properties uh, in a very similar manner. So it's fun to be able yeah. to learn directly from Brian on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So thanks a lot, Brian. Definitely appreciate it. All right, guys. Well, listen, thanks again for checking us out. Again, this is Bigger Pockets podcast show 126. So you can check out the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 126. You guys, if you are not active in Bigger Pockets and you are not engaged in our community, you are seriously missing out. There is no cost to this. There is no commitment. There is nothing. You literally join a free website with hundreds of thousands of your peers and you talk to them and you learn from them and you've got this amazing group of mentors that no guru or anyone else could possibly even come close to uh, having for you. The Bigger Pockets Forums is the single greatest mentor peer group on the planet. So get on, ask your questions. We all have questions. I've got questions and I ask them on the forums. Brandon's got questions. He asks them on the forums. That's what they're there for. Um, let, let your peers help you out. So join today, biggerpockets.com. And otherwise, if you're not following us on Facebook, on Twitter, on G+, Eh, not so much G+, it's kind of a dying breed there, but LinkedIn, you know, uh, make sure to follow us. We share updates, we share cool stuff, um, coupons, tips, things like that. So definitely get involved and uh, check us over there. And that's it. We'll see you next week. I'm Josh Dorkin, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. 
This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.